we will be heard. No guilty words, just filthy nerves. Children, you will receive what you still deserve. This is Rahman Jamal for Pacifica Radio in 2009, the very last of its kind, rebuilding first. This is listener-sponsored radio for Northern and Central California, KPFA and KPFB in Berkeley, and KFCF in Fresno, and online all around the world, and archived at kpfa.org. All right. I'm Gary Baca. Good afternoon, and welcome to Cover to Cover. This is Open Book. This is Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. This afternoon, we continue with the series Plain Speaking, a counter history of the United States that was produced in 1976 by us here at KPFA in Berkeley. Created four years before Howard Zinn's seminal work, A People's History of the United States, Plain Speaking, presents an alternative history to traditional American history taught in public schools. Part two examines slavery through the writings of Shanjanur Truth, Frederick Douglass, Walt Whitman, Harry David Thoreau, and many others. Stay tuned. I thought as long as I stayed where the white folks was, they would protect me from all harm, even the stars and the elements, storms or whatnot. Just staying at the white folks, and I had nothing to worry about. I thought white folks made the stars, the sun, and everything on earth. I knowed nothing but to be driven and beat all the time. I seen them take the bottom rail out of the rail fences and stick the nigger's head in the hole and then jam the balance of the fence down on his neck and beat him till he's stiff. The slaves who most exemplified those qualities of obedience, submissiveness, and dependence have come to be known as Uncle Tom's. The name being taken from the central character of Harriet Beecher Stowe's anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Generally, these Uncle Toms were those slaves who had the most contact with the master and his family, the house servants. Because of this constant contact, the house servants were much more likely to be the model slaves that slave owners dreamed of. Quite often, a house servant was trained to his duty from childhood. He was separated from the other slaves, and from that time on, He slept on a pallet on the floor of the owner's bedroom or outside his door. He was raised to believe that to be a house servant was the greatest honor that could come to him. My master gave me better clothes than the little slaves of my age generally received. He often told me that he intended to make me his waiter and that if I behaved well, I should become his overseer in time. These stations of waiter and overseer appeared to me the highest points of honor and greatness in the whole world. And had not circumstances frustrated my master's plans as well as my own views, I should probably have been living at this time in a cabin on the corner of some tobacco plantation. On many plantations, house servants were hated by the slaves who worked in the fields. These servants often took their master's interests so seriously that they acted as spies for them. House servants were responsible for uncovering and revealing to slave owners innumerable planned slave insurrections. They taught us to be against one another. And no matter where you would go, you would always find one that would paddle and have the white folk pecking on you. They would be trying to make it soft for themselves. Many house slaves, however, shared the attitudes of the field hand. They used their positions inside the great house to spy on the master, not for him. 
was serving gal for messes. Used to have to stand behind her at the table and reach her the salt, the syrup, and anything else she called for. Old Massa would spell out real fast anything he don't want me to know about. One day, Massa was fit to be tied. He was in such a bad mood, was raving about the crops and the taxes and the trifling niggas he got to feed. Gonna sell him, I swear for Christ. I'm gonna sell him, he said. Then old Mrs. asked which ones he gonna sell and tell him quick to spell it. Then he spelled out G-A-B-E and R-U-F-U-S. Of course, I stood there without batting an eye, making believe I didn't even hear. But I was packing them letters up in my head all the time. And as soon as I finished dishes, I rushed down to my father and say them to him just like Master Sam. Father said quiet like, Gabe and Rufus, and told me to go back to the house and say I ain't been out. The next day, Gabe and Rufus was gone. They had run away. Master nearly died, got to cussing and raving, so he took sick. Mrs. went to town and told the sheriff, but they never could find those two slaves. country is filled with so many contradictions, so many contradictions. While slaves toiled throughout the South, many white people were feeling a weight lifted from their shoulders by the 1776 War of Independence. They were on their own, working in many cases for themselves, and they looked with hope and confidence to the future in this new life they were creating. One of the most kind-hearted and optimistic of them was a young man named Walt Whitman. I celebrate myself and sing myself. And what I assume, you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me, as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease. My tongue, every atom of my blood formed from this soil... This heir, born here of parents born here, from parents the same, and their parents the same. I, now 37 years old, in perfect health, begin, hoping to cease not till death. Creeds and schools in abeyance, retiring back a while, sufficed at what they are, but never forgotten. I harbor for good or bad, I permit to speak at every hazard. Nature, without check 
with original energy. I hear America singing. The varied carols I hear. Those of mechanics. Each one singing his as it should be. Blithe and strong. The carpenter singing his as he measures his plank or beam. The mason singing his as he makes ready for work or leaves off work. The boatman singing what belongs to him in his boat. The deckhand singing on the steamboat deck. The shoemaker singing as he sits on his bench. The hatter singing as he stands. The woodcutter's song. The plowboy's on his way in the morning or at noon intermission or at sundown. The delicious singing of the mother or of the young wife at work or of the girl sewing or washing. Each singing what belongs to him or her and to none else. The day what belongs to the day. At night, the party of young fellows, robust, friendly, singing with open mouths their strong, melodious songs. Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, read by Ed Begley Sr., while women gloried in the expansive American dream, some white people were having their doubts. Henry David Thoreau wrote Walden in the late 1840s. He questioned the small farmer capitalism, westward expansionism, and the condition of black slavery. Farmers of Concord, or at least as well off as the other classes, have been toiling 20, 30, or 40 years that they may become the real owners of their farms, which commonly they have inherited with encumbrances or else bought with hired money. And we may regard one-third of that toil as the cost of their houses, but commonly they've not paid for them yet. It is true the encumbrances sometimes outweigh the value of the farm, so that the farm itself becomes one great encumbrance. And still a man is found to inherit it, being well acquainted with it, as he says. On applying to the assessors, I am surprised to learn that they cannot at once name a dozen in the town who own their farms free and clear. If you would know the history of those homesteads, inquire at the bank where they are mortgaged. The man who has actually paid for his farm with labor on it is so rare that every neighbor can point to him. I doubt if there are three such men in Concord. What has been said of the merchants, that a very large majority, even 97 in 100, are sure to fail, is equally true of the farmers. With regard to the merchants, however, one of them says, pertinently, that a great part of their failures are not genuine pecuniary failures, but merely failures to fulfill their engagements because it is inconvenient. That is, it is the moral character that breaks down. But this puts an infinitely worse face on the matter and suggests, beside, that probably not even the other three succeed in saving their souls, but are perchance bankrupt in a worse sense than they who fail honestly. Bankruptcy and repudiation are the springboards from which much of our civilization vaults and turns its somersets, but the savage stands on the unelastic plank of famine. Now near the end of March, 1845, 
I borrowed an axe and went down to the woods by Walden Pond, nearest to where I intended to build my house, and began to cut down some tall, arrowy white pines still in their youth for timber. It is difficult to begin without borrowing, but perhaps it is the most generous course thus to permit your fellow men to have an interest in your enterprise. The owner of the act said that it was the apple of his eye, but I returned it sharper than I received it. It was a pleasant hillside where I worked, covered with pine woods through which I looked out on the pond and the small open field in the woods where pines and hickories were springing up. The ice in the pond was not yet dissolved, though there were some open spaces, and it was all dark-colored and saturated with water. There were some slight flurries of snow during the days that I worked there, but for the most part, when I came out onto the railroad on my way home, its yellow sand heaps stretched away, gleaming in the hazy atmosphere, and the rail shone in the spring sun, and I heard the lark and peewee and other birds already come to commence another year with us. They were pleasant spring days in which the winter of man's discontent was thawing, as well as the earth, and the life that had lay in torpid began to stretch itself. One day, when my axe had come off, and I had cut a green hickory for a wedge, driving it with a stone, and had placed the hole to soak in a pond hole in order to swell the wood, I saw a striped snake run into the water, and he lay on the bottom apparently without inconvenience as long as I stayed there, or more than a quarter of an hour, perhaps because he had not yet fairly come out of the torpid state. It appeared to me that for a like reason, men remain in their present low and primitive condition. But if they should feel the influence of the spring of springs arousing them, they would of necessity rise to a higher and more ethereal life. Walden by Henry David Thoreau, read by Archibald MacLeish. Sister, tell her pray for me. 
Tell my mother, don't write to me. Oh, tell my buddy, ain't got to write no more. I got a long time, sinners ain't gonna see me no more. Oh, oh man, oh man, buddy. Who is that man, buddy, on that big white horse? I don't know his name, but... The abolitionist movement was interracial. Many northern professionals and working people objected to slavery as a matter of conscience. And northern industrialists were beginning to see the slave system as an obstacle to modern industrial development. In order for good old free enterprise to grow and give good returns, free mobile workers were needed. The abolitionist cause began to fit the needs both of people of conscience and of people who owned factories. There's a whole story to tell about cotton and tariffs and foreign trade, but we'll leave that story for another time. Of all the abolitionist leaders, none was more important in the long run than Frederick Douglass, an ex-slave who received the help of white opponents of slavery both here and in Europe. Ossie Davis tells part of the story of Frederick Douglass's autobiography, and then another part of the story in the words of the great black poet Langston Hughes. Having remained abroad for nearly two years and being about to return to America, not as I left it, a slave, but a free man, prominent friends of the cause of emancipation in England offered to make me a testimonial, both on the grounds of personal regard to me and also to the cause to which they were so ardently devoted. I suggested that my friends should simply give me the means of obtaining a printing press and materials to enable me to start a paper advocating the interest of my enslaved and oppressed people. I told them that perhaps the greatest hindrance to the adoption of abolition principles by the people of the United States was the low estimate everywhere in that country placed upon the Negro as a man that because of his assumed natural inferiority, people reconcile themselves to his enslavement and oppression as being inevitable, if not desirable. The grand thing to be done, therefore, was to change this estimation by disproving his inferiority and demonstrating his capacity for a more exalted civilization than slavery and prejudice had assigned him. In my judgment, a newspaper in the hands of persons of the despised race would, by calling out and making them acquainted with their own latent powers, by enkindling their hope of a future and developing their moral force, prove a most powerful means of removing prejudice and awaking an interest in them. These views I laid before my friends. The result was that nearly $2,500 was speedily raised toward my establishing such a paper as I had indicated. On December 3rd, 1847, I launched my own newspaper, The North Star, in Rochester, New York. I chose this name because a slave followed the North Star when he escaped north to freedom. On the masthead, I inscribed as the paper's motto the words, Right is of no sex, truth is of no color, God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren. In a message to my oppressed countrymen, I wrote, 
We solemnly dedicate the North Star to the cause of our long-oppressed and plundered fellow countrymen. May God bless the undertaking to your good. It shall fearlessly assert your rights, faithfully proclaim your wrongs, and earnestly demand for you instant and even-handed justice. Giving no quarter to slavery in the South, it will hold no truce with oppressors in the North, while it shall boldly advocate emancipation for our enslaved brethren, it shall omit no opportunity to gain for the nominally free, complete enfranchisement. Every effort to injure or degrade you or your cause originating wheresoever or with whomsoever shall find in it a constant, unswerving and inflexible foe. Remember that we are one, that our cause is one, and that we must help each other if we would succeed. We have drunk to the dregs the bitter cup of slavery. We have worn the heavy yoke. We have sighed beneath our bonds and writhed beneath the bloody lash. Cruel mementos of our oneness are indelibly marked on our living flesh. We are one with you under the ban of prejudice and proscription. One with you under the slander of inferiority. One with you in social and political disfranchisement. What you suffer, we suffer. What you endure, we endure. Douglas was someone who, had he walked with weary foot a frightened tread from very indecision, might be dead, might have lost his soul, but instead decided to be bold and capture every street on which he set his feet, to route each path towards freedom's goal, to make each highway choose his compass's choice. To all the world cried, hear my voice. Oh, to be a beast a bird, anything but a slave, he said. Who would be free themselves must strike the first blow, he said. He died in 1895. He is not dead. Sojourner Truth was another abolitionist leader, one who felt that the connection between freedom for black people and freedom from the peculiar kind of bondage to which women are subjected are linked. Born into slavery in upstate New York, Sojourner Truth gained her freedom in 1827 when New York finally freed its slaves. She later became active in the abolitionist and feminist movements. Once while she was speaking on an Indiana platform to pro-slavery northerners, a local doctor rose to heckle her. He said that some people doubted the sex of the speaker. He asked Sojourner to submit to an inspection by local ladies. The meeting became loud with screams and laughter. Sojourner looked out into the audience and shouted, My breasts have suckled many a white babe, even when they should have been suckling my own. She pointed to her audience. Some of those white babes are now grown men. And even though they have suckled my Negro breasts, they are, in my opinion, far more manly than any of you appear to be. 
Suddenly, she ripped open the front of her dress. I will show my breast to the entire congregation. It's not my shame, but yours. Here, then, see for yourself. She looked straight into the doctor's face and then said quietly, Do you wish also to suck? At a woman's right convention in 1851, Sojourner stood up and made her now famous speech. Well, children, while there's so much racket, there must be something out of kilter. I think that twixt the Negroes of the South and the women of the North all are talking about rights. The white man will be in a fix pretty soon. But what's all this you're talking about? That man over there say that women needs to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helped me into carriages or over mud puddles or give me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much when I could get it. As man, bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne many children and seen them most all sold off into slavery. And when I cried with a mother's grief, none but Jesus heard. And ain't I a woman? Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Abraham Lincoln in 1863. The news came on a Thursday, and all the slaves been shouting and carrying on till everybody was tired out. I remember the first Sunday of freedom. We was all sitting around resting and trying to think what freedom meant. And everybody was quiet and peaceful. All at once, old sister Carrie, who was near about a hundred, started into talking. They ain't no more selling today. They ain't no more hiring today. They ain't no more pulling off shirts today. It's stomp down freedom today. Stomp it down. And when she says, stomp it down, all the slaves commence to shouting with her. It's stomp down freedom today, stomp it down. Stomp down freedom today, stomp it down. Stomp down freedom today. Was no more peace that Sunday. Everybody started in to sing and shout once more. First thing you know, they done made up music to Sister Carrie's stomp song and sang and shouted that song all the rest of the day. Child, that was one glorious time. I remember hearing my pa say that when somebody come and hollered, you niggas is free at last. So he just dropped his hoe and said in a queer voice, thank God for that. It made old Miss and old Massa so sick they stopped eating a week. Paul said old Massa and old Miss looked like their stomachs and guts had a lawsuit and their neighbor was called in for a witness. They were so sorry we was free. And that does it for this week's edition of From the Vault. The series is produced by Brian DeShazer and Mark Torres and executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives. This episode is written by Mark Torres. We are now streaming and podcasting online at fromthevaultradio.org. 
For more information, call the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or visit us online at pacificaradioarchives.org. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts and grants from the Grammy Foundation, the University of California Berkeley's Moffitt Library, the New American Archive Pilot Program, the Pacifica Foundation, and from contributions from Pacifica Station listeners. That was Open Book, uh, cover to cover. And before we get to Free Speech Radio News, we have a few announcements to make. Uh, this coming weekend, Power to the Peaceful, a free event this weekend in Golden Gate Park at the Speedway Meadow. And Sunday in the evening, the festival will continue at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. And KPFA's Hard Knock Radio will be representing. Once again, uh, Michael Franti will be on the bill as well as uh, Sly and Robbie. And this Sunday, there'll be a lowrider show, a lowrider car show in Antioch at the Antioch Fairgrounds starting at noon. And this will feature Mac 10, Richie Rich, and Rap and Forte with the hosts of other uh, artists. And there'll be custom cars, bombs, a hopping contest, and classic cars, as well as a lot of entertainment. And also happening on the 17th, coming up this Thursday, there'll be a party at the Retro at the Metro, the Metro Opera House in Oakland. And this is at 630 3rd Street in Oakland. And it's a throwback costume party. Also, Michael Jackson impersonation contest, turf dancing, a um, break dancing contest, all kinds of good stuff. They'll be focusing on the 80s and the 90s. They'll be playing rock, hip-hop uh, R&B, reggae, techno. Once again, this Thursday, the 17th, 630 3rd Street. Uh, KPFA will be, be representing. I'll be there uh, hosting, just having a good time. Stay tuned for Free Speech.